foolish or not be it, good at something and people a, are going to see, oh, Tate's not so great at everything. No, I don't think it's emotional. I think it's purely logical. Mm. I, I'm thinking about my day. <laughs> Every single thing I do. Of course it's I emotional. So all this subjectiveness and all this choice and all this garbage, sometimes when I'm like, okay, I want to be a good person. I want a framework to adhere to that makes me a good person. Well, this is very clear. Yes, no, easy. For a self-proclaimed capitalist, that sounded kind of communist. What he said just there. <laughs> I think that he's that everything he just said, he's talking about himself. I suspect that something like that or that exact scenario happened to him. Hey guys, you are about to listen to part two of the Great Tate debate where myself and Chloe Valdery react in real time to the recent viral debate between psychologist David Sutcliffe and the infamous Andrew Tate. If you haven't listened to part one, you may want to go back and listen to the first part to have context for this episode. Or if you don't care about starting in the middle of the debate, then by all means, please drop right into part two. Speaking of dropping in... I just dropped another bonus episode on Auxoro Premium at auxoro.supercast.com. Auxoro Premium is the place where all Auxoro bonus content lives, where I record conversations and solo episodes on topics like technology, politics, drugs, sex, and more. Think of it like an offshoot of the Auxoro podcast where things can get a little bit spicier because we're behind the paywall. Most recently, I recorded a bonus episode where I react to the debate on Christian nationalism between the professional provocateur Milo Yiannopoulos and political commentator Destiny, and this one had a ton of spiciness. I have a feeling that if this one was on YouTube, it may get pulled down, but not to worry because it lives on Auxoro Premium, which is the only place you can watch it. Head to auxoro.supercast.com today for bonus episodes, subscriber-only AMAs where you can ask me anything, the entire back catalog of bonus content which grows every month and more. That's auxoro.supercast.com. I'll see you there. This time I sit down with Chloe Valdery to react to part two of the electric debate between Andrew Tate and David Sutcliffe. This debate has over 3 million views on YouTube alone and counting. So when Chloe reached out to me and said, do you want to react to this? I said, hell Yes, we had a little bit of a technical disruption at the beginning of the episode, which is why it sounds like we're starting abruptly, but not to worry because we went back to the spot where we ended off at the end of part one. So everything flows through in part two of what will be a three part series. I felt like we cracked even more deeply into Tate's psyche to truly understand the man behind the infamous Manosphere mask prison entering a godlike state acquiring riches, what truly makes a man successful, the art of being present, we get into it all during our continued exploration of this debate. Without further ado, please enjoy this deep dive reaction of Chloe Valdery and I to the Great Tate Debate Part 2. All right, we are back from what is hopefully the last technical difficulty okay let me know when you can see it's, it's you have to be insensitive okay what are you crying about let's fix that right well, you know lot, you know that's wrong well a lot of people want to vent they don't want to fix the problem they want well, to cry. They just need you to be with them and, and say i and understand then, and yeah, here you are exactly. baby i love Com you complete <laughs> rolling your eyes yeah but but i'm a pro that's what i'm saying so when you become a ruthless problem solver right you become to a degree insensitive. Now, there are some scenarios which that doesn't work, right? right. There's some, some problems you can't fix. The mm -hmm. death of a loved one, that's different. Yeah. But if people are crying about something which is very fixable, it's very difficult for me to be in, in, interested in their crying. And I'll tell you why. 
Because if I have a set standard for myself, if I wouldn't allow myself that luxury, it's very hard for me to give it out to everybody else. If I don't allow myself the luxury of being incompetent because of an emotion, then it's very hard for me to look at others and go, well, you're allowed to be incompetent because of your emotions and mm. you're allowed to be incompetent because of your emotions and I'll just deal with the struggle of never being incompetent ever regardless of how I feel. If I have standard for myself, I'm gonna impl implore my standard or imply my standard on others. And if they don't meet that standard, then they're gonna call me insensitive. What would you have to give up to become more sensitive, particularly to your women? I'm, very, I'm a very sensitive, romantic, nice man. Yeah. In general, I'm actually a romantic man. I get called that a lot. No one calls me cold. Right. It's different. You're loving? Completely. Mm. But I, when it comes to problems especially, right. I, am I am in, can be insensitive. You default to problem solving. Absolutely. That's not what they want. What's they, the issue? They want you to just understand and hold them. They want to cry about the problem a while. And time is, <laughs> time is money. Time is money. I'm like, okay, yeah, yeah. Boom, boom, fixed. Right. No, but you don't understand. Da, da, da. I do understand. Now it's fixed. Shh. Next. Like, Right. I think that's right. just, but I think that's just competence. And I think that's genuinely, I think most men are kind of like that. Perhaps I'm just, yes. I'm just hyper like that. Yes. Um, so I get called insensitive sometimes. What else do people say negative about me? This is interesting. Are you arrogant? Well, the difference between arrogance and reality is just competence, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> say that again? The difference between arrogance and a healthy grasp of reality is only going to be the competence I of mean, an individual. that's one way of looking at it. But if I can kick the fuck out of everybody, for example, and I say I can kick the fuck out of everybody. Wait, like, I'm trying to figure out, this. he said the difference between arrogance and reality is competence. And reality. So reality minus arrogance equals competence. I'm trying to figure out, <laughs> I'm trying to, like, I, I get what he's saying. I, he, he obviously sees the... The muscle of being an emotional container, which is the metaphor that you used as a muscle that's not worth exercising. Yeah. That's, that's not a muscle that is in the realm of competency. That's, you know, doing that is uh, it, it's not worth people's time to build up that muscle in his view. But I but of course, ironically, he is doing that like his entire at least. I don't know what you would call it, social media or YouTube, whatever, personality, meaning everything that is separate from him fighting in the ring, his public persona, it, all it is is verbal mm. expression, right? Like all it is, if you want to boil it down to the nuts and bolts, is him in conversations with people or debates with people or whatever, but it's all verbal expression. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> that's what it is yeah and it, yeah. it is kind of ironic because for the majority of this conversation david sutton the psychologist has been somewhat of an emotional container where he's reflecting back a lot right. of what tate is saying <laughs> so and, and tate enjoys this obviously because he let this guy into his home he's yeah. talking to him for what will amount to two hours or, or i think it's over two hours and Tate is happy to go on and on yeah. and on to this guy who is receiving him emotionally. But when it comes to having to form an emotional container for someone else, that is not something that Tate is interested in or views as competent. Right. It's it's layers of uh, I was just looking up the etymology of the word arrogant to see if there's going to be anything interesting there. But it's just layers yeah. of contradiction. Yeah, 100 <laughs> percent. 
not necessarily. It depends on the, the kind of energy of it, right? But I mean, one might say that arrogance hides insecurity. Like, are there places where you're insecure? That's another very good question. But let me think about this for a second and answer it, because these are questions I've never been asked before. But I don't, okay, so where am I insecure about? I, this is another point. And maybe this is a personality characteristic, which is interesting. I don't do anything I'm bad at ever. Oh, like singing? <laughs> yeah, like singing. I cannot sing, so I will not sing. Very convenient. But how do you find out what you're good at or what you're bad at if you never try any? <laughs> he obviously sucked at fighting when he started fighting. He might have been point, more genetically yeah, gifted yeah. than other people when he started. But compared yeah. to professional fighters, he sucked. So... That's kind of a, right. a backwards mentality of not trying anything that you're not good at. Well, it's, it's really, I think, proof that rationality as a defensive mechanism is exactly that. People like to, I find this is pervasive in general, like, I guess if you want to call it in the manosphere world, but also in the like right-wing world where people will wax poetic about the importance of being rational and they will try to make a false dichotomy between being rational and being emotional. But in fact, that's not a thing. Like from a scientific perspective, there's this great book called Descartes' Error, which was written by a scientist where he studies the brain and he shows that you cannot separate logic from emotion. Mm. That's not like a real thing. And rationality as a defensive mechanism is wielded in service of certain emotional outcomes that we as human beings desire. And I think you can see that here, like by you pointing out a lot of the contradictions and the ways in which some of what Andrew is saying simply does not make sense, right? It's just sort of an after-the-fact argument to justify his belief about yeah. his self-worth which is ultimately an emotional project and that's okay there's nothing wrong with an emotional project we are emotional beings but if you are unable to appreciate the full complexity of yourself and of what it means to be human which includes that emotional capacity then you will just start saying self-contradictory things yeah. that don't make any sense and also what a boring life to not ever do anything that you suck at I feel like that's a, that's a huge part yeah. of the enjoyment of life is acknowledging that you suck at something and still trying it anyway. Like singing awful karaoke in a bar in front of a packed room of people yeah. where the idea is that, yeah, everyone sucks. And if you're good, it's kind of annoying. Yeah. It, it's better to suck. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you, you suck. This is how it's supposed yeah. to be. We're drunk at 3 a.m. Everyone sucks at this shit and everyone is going up. <laughs> regardless you're you're embracing the suck that's so right. yeah that just seems like that's right now you're making me want to go do karaoke yeah well <laughs> i mean i'm fired up i'm, I'm fine we'll find us a room find us a room and, and we'll do it we'll do it with tape For sure. Lower we, east we, side. we need to bring tape to karaoke we, this will andrew yes. tate doing karaoke would be like a normal person doing ayahuasca it, it would just be it would be like a yeah. psychedelic <laughs> It would be mind For him blowing, to just yeah. try to sing a Whitney Houston song would be a psychedelic experience. <laughs> yes. For all involved, for yeah. everyone involved. <laughs> 100%. And I'd love to hear you sing. I'm sure you wouldn't. But maybe that once again shapes my reality because I refuse to do anything I am bad at. 
If I'm bad at it, I hire someone else to do it, or I find someone else who's good at it, and I offer value to them to do it. I don't do any, my entire reality. Why, why, because you don't wanna, I mean, there's the, the things you're incompetent in, uh, in and, and you have time, but like, uh, because you're scared to look uh, foolish or no, not be it, good at something, and people a, are gonna see, oh, Tate's not so great at everything. No, I don't think it's emotional, I think it's purely logical. I, mm. I'm thinking about my day, every single thing I do. Of course it's I emotional. <laughs> If I, I'll, I'll put boxing gloves on after this and I'll go fight and I'll beat everybody. I'll destroy everyone. Mm -hmm. And I think I only enjoy things that I'm good at. Mm -hmm. And I also think that if I have X amount of hours in the day, the way I can be the most competitive, most fearsome predator is to spend all of my waking time doing things I'm the best at and leave things that I'm not good at to the other people who perhaps are good at them. Mm -hmm. If you're an accountant and you want to become as rich as possible, then what you do is as many hours as possible accounting. But you're rationalizing. I am, correct. Yeah. So let me rationalize yeah. it. Yeah. I'll rationalize it. Yeah, but that's what you do. Yeah. That's a, that, that can be a defense. I mean, rationalization is a classic defense. Yeah, but that's my, rationalization. And you're really good at it, but right? It's just, but, but it's like a sword you have that's super sharp and you want to use it all the time. All the time. Yeah, but what if you set it down and realize there's other tools available in your toolkit and maybe you need to develop those? But rationalizing is how I built my mind. Uh -huh. it's all... You don't have to give it up. The sword's right there. You just don't have to use it all the time. But, it, but, it's, but it's all, my entire framework and how I view the world has all been one massive rationalization and it's, lent, it's let me build a reality which is exactly what I want it to you be. you know, you must know that that has limitations because you can't rationalize everything. That's not what life is. Isn't it? Right? There's an, well, there's, an, there's other layers of reality that the mind does not understand. Okay, well. Right? You're, you're right. And just because I rationalize things doesn't mean I don't feel things, but yeah. I know you feel things. Yeah, I feel things. And I know you're, I actually know that you're really sensitive. Like I feel, I wouldn't be here yeah. if I, I thought you were some, you know, maniacal psychopath. Correct. It's because I'm here because I can feel, and that's what I think a lot of people saw in, in the interview. Um, they felt your sensitivity. They felt your vulnerability and they were really attracted to it. Oh, I'm a lot more sensitive than people know. And, this is one of the things I like to say. When I talk about depression not being real or how life is pain and suffering, that doesn't mean that I, I'm not saying those things because I've never felt them. Yeah. I'm saying those things because I know them intimately. Mm -hmm. I'm saying those things because I know exactly how it would feel to label myself a depressed person. Yeah. I know it very well. I just refused to do it. Right. So yeah, I'm absolutely not really a sensitive person. I would label myself sensitive, but just maybe my, but, but maybe one second, I just want to go back to my original point. Yeah. Maybe my worldview is affected by, and we're talking about arrogance. <laughs> when you wake up and all you do are things your world level at. Yeah. Everything you do are things you're fantastic at, right? Mm -hmm. All of the time. Yeah. And you beat everybody all of the time at all of it. Yeah. Aren't you going to have a degree, a tinge perhaps? Of arrogance? Of course. Of course of you course. are. Of so, course. but would I label myself an arrogant person? Well, I'm not going to sit down and say I'm good at something I'm not. Right. So I don't think I'm unrealistic. Are you, are you taking on the full responsibility that you have given all of the gifts that you've been given by God? Do you, do you, are there, is there any place where you're uh, not taking on responsibility for that? No, I think I take care of absolutely everybody I love in every single way. I think anybody who's ever needed me, I've been there for them if they've deserved it. I think anybody who listens to my message is becoming a better person overall. I genuinely believe I'm fixing and helping society. I don't know what else more I'm supposed to do. I mean, to a degree, I've almost martyred myself. Mm -hmm. What else more can I do? Mm -hmm. My options at this point are either to continue to help people and explain to men why I became so successful, which is all I'm basically doing. I'm saying, you're a man and you're upset and you want to be X. Mm -hmm. I'm telling you how I became what I wanted to be. Mm -hmm. This is what I did. Is there anything beyond the things you just said that you're, 
responsible for? Like, what is your responsibility here? My responsibility? To, 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 well, I guess ultimately to yourself, it's to your family first, yep. right? To, to, what is your responsibility to God? I think God wants me to be the best possible version of myself. Uh-huh. I think that God dislikes people who are lazy. I said this to somebody yeah. once and he got very offended. I said, God doesn't like lazy people. God has created you and he wants to see the absolute best you can be. I think that if you don't take care of yourself, God has no interest in taking care of you. If you have a Ferrari on the drive and you don't take care of it, who's going to take care of it? Nobody. I think that taking care of yourself and being the best possible version of yourself you can be is how you please God. I think that's one of the best ways to Mm -hmm. praise him Mm -hmm. is to wake up every day and say, I need to be the strongest, smartest, fastest, most fearsome, most stoic, most capable man I can possibly be. This is how I please God. So I think your duty to God is also these things. And that's another massive source of strength that I, that I get when I'm alone in a jail cell, I understand that God is still watching and God would be unhappy if I couldn't handle it. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think, maybe we can, we can talk about God or we can also talk just about basic cosmic balance. I don't believe you can become the most famous man on the planet calling yourself the top G without the universe testing if you're really about it. I don't think it's, you're gonna get to a point where the, where the universe, whatever you wanna call it, is gonna say, is he really the top G? Yeah. And you're gonna have to prove it. If you walk through life and say, I'm, I'm, I'm made of iron, I'm Mr. Tough Guy, sooner or later someone's gonna check you right. and find out if you are or not. Right. So when I was doing this for a very long time, I wasn't ignorant to the fact that something's gonna come along and see if I am who I am. Mm-hmm. So when I'm sitting in a jail cell by myself with cockroaches all over the floor, mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, this is my chance to show I'm not full of shit. Right. Was I full of shit? No, I wasn't. Am I going to allow everything I've ever said and my last name and my duty to God and everything to go down the pan or am I going to just man up and fucking win? Right. So I saw it, I guess, to a degree as an opportunity, but there was a massive burden of responsibility on me on how I had to perform. I didn't have time to be depressed or sad. This is what I'm saying to you earlier. I didn't have time. I had, I had things to do. Top G's kids can't eat. Top G's women can't pay the bills. Top G's business is over. Top G, no, I had to fix all of it from jail and fix myself and get out. I was very busy <laughs> inside of my brain, staring at a wall. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I didn't have time for this. And, and this is another thing I try and explain to people and I don't understand about, and I talk about men specifically because I understand how to be successful as a man. When men say to me they're depressed, with unlimited options, with the capability to become anything you desire, with God giving you a full and able body and mind, how do you have time to be depressed? Mm-hmm. You have so much you could do. Mm-hmm. There's so much that you need to do to be your best self. And you're competing against men like me. Yeah. And you're finding hours a day to be sad. Mm-hmm. No wonder you're going to perpetually lose forever. Right. That's suicide. So how do you find time to do this? Mm-hmm. It's, it's brutally ineffective. You have a brain, you have a mind, you have a mental model. You can't think of everything, you can't do everything. You can only have certain frameworks instilled inside of your mind. Mm -hmm. As a man, you should be hyper-competitive. You should try and be the best version of yourself you can be. You're competing against every other man on earth for the girl you want, the car you want, the house you want, the watch you wear, it's all competition. You should be as competitive as you possibly can. Anything that's inside of your mind which doesn't allow you to be competitive should be erased. This is why I can't name a weakness. I I can't name a weakness I have. Pause, so do you remember in the first part where he said that the only thing that is better than being hyper competitive is I'm paraphrasing is not wanting mm, yes the thing the watch the car do, yeah. in the first place now now he says anything that does not allow you 
to be the most competitive you can be, you should erase from your mental yeah. model. So it's like, I'm getting mixed signals. I mean, it's a very powerful and compelling speech, this part. And I think there are parts of it that are that are true and valid, but there are also parts of it that are like, well, again, if your highest, if I think it is true that men should be able to compete, for example. And I think that competition is a beautiful thing, in fact. But competition, if competition is your highest goal, then that will start to create self-fulfilling prophecies where, as we spoke about it in the first round, you will see every person who disagrees with you as Mm. an enemy to compete against. And that's why if competition isn't in service of a higher virtue, maybe like the spirit of play or something like love, I would say those two things are actually very much interconnected. If, if there's, if you don't have a higher value than competition, then you will start to undermine your own system because you will have to compete against yourself in a way that's ultimately alienate a form of alienation. Mm. Not to mention fighting against others around yeah. you. Yeah, I, I, I agree 100%. I also feel like when he's talking about depression, and I, I, I fell into this trap too before I spoke to people mm. who suffered from clinical depression or I listened to people like Robert Sapolsky talk about depression. Mm. I, it, it was hard for me to conceptualize why depressed people just couldn't get out of bed and go on living their life because it seems Mm -hmm. so easy from an athletic perspective you just turn it on and you you do what you have to Mm do you yeah life sucks but you just you do the things that suck anyway so you could get to the good stuff and then i spoke to people in my family who took antidepressants that were diagnosed with clinical depression. I listened to podcasts with people like Sapolsky or Andrew Huberman talk about depression and how it's, you know, like part of your brain is broken. Your neurochemistry is imbalanced. It's like telling someone with a broken leg to just get up and go do some sprints and and figure it out. You're just going to perpetually hurt yourself without the proper care and rest and medication Mm -hmm. if, if you need it. So I... I think his viewpoint, I think Tate's viewpoint may change if he encountered mm. some of the things that some of the impactful conversations around depression that I've experienced. If he had people in his life sort of sit him down and explain, this is what it's like to be clinically depressed or, you know, I've studied depression for 20 yeah. years. This, this is what it's like. And I'll never really know what it's like to be clinically depressed unless I experience it myself. But I, I have had conversations that have severely changed my perspective on this the the deepness and the the darkness of depression and how serious it is like mm-hmm. you can't shake it off yeah if, it, if you could shake it off it's not clinical yeah, depression right that's a that's a really good point and i wonder about i wonder if his capacity to perceive that is 
lessened by the fact that his mental model is based on rationalization. Mm. Yeah, yeah. If you can rationalize yourself so, out of anything, you could do it with depression, supposedly. So Supposedly, we'll yeah. I've compensated so heavily for any weakness that may exist, I don't even see them anymore. Is your belief in God tied into this concept that we talked about, that what's useful is more important than what's true or better than what's true? So we don't, do, do we know that God exists? I, I mean, we don't know. Correct. But it's useful to believe in God. That's a very good question. I think that believing in God certainly makes you more powerful, yeah. which is proof for God. If God makes you more powerful, then God is real. So maybe that's very simplistic. Mm -hmm. But if I believe in God and I'm a more powerful version of myself because I believe in him, then he must exist. Yes. God has made me more powerful. Well, it's the act of believing him that makes him exist. It's another way of saying what it's you just said. Correct. Yeah. So this is why I believe faith is such an important thing. But I think everybody has a God anyway. Yes. There's no such thing as atheists. If you look at the people who say, oh, I don't believe in God, they worship a, a flag mm-hmm. and a vaccine. Yeah. So everyone <laughs> believes in something. Yeah. So you have to decide what your religion is. And I, once again, refuse to believe in anything that takes away power right. from me. Because mm-hmm. God is rationalism. And I believe that believing in God gives you a, a new degree of strength. And I also think everybody, to some degree, believes in God. I don't care what anybody says. If you put anyone in that submarine just before it imploded, everyone would pray. Yeah. Everyone. Yeah. So it's ignorant to even say you don't believe in God at this point. It's interesting that you chose Islam. And I, I heard you talk a little bit about how you see yeah. God in Islam uh, as kind of, you know, I don't know what harsh is, but like firm yep. and uh, directional and clear yes. and this is right and this is wrong, yep. which sounds a lot like your life. dad. Well, it sounds a lot like life. Yeah, like life. There's, there's right and wrong in life. Mm-hmm. All this complete subjectiveness, this mush uh, they're trying to create yeah. is done on purpose to confuse us. Yeah. His entire, again, I just want to point out for the, for the audience. <laughs> Here, Andrew Tate is complaining about subjective mush, where he's spent the past 45 minutes talking about how his mental model, which is by definition a subjective frame, right, where his mental model has been constructed to give him more power. So in the same way, that let's say everyone believes in God according to the way Andrew has defined it, and I, I think that's right. Everyone is perpetuating something mm. subjectively. Call it mush or not, the subjective frame. I mean, I think quantum physics actually demonstrates this. Um, but the subjective frame is what we are operating from because it is impossible to ultimately know. Like, what is the nature of God, the nature of reality, the nature of ourselves? It's impossible to know. And so every, almost everything that I see Andrew complaining about in the, the media, the so-called matrix, whatever, he is perpetuating it and he operates according to the same frame, just at a different angle. Yeah, yeah, 100%. The, the, the exercise of creating a mental model is an exercise in subjectivity. Because it's something, yeah. it's like goggles that you put on yourself to walk through the world and all your biases, all your thoughts, all your, all the things that pop into your head get filtered through this mental model. But that's just for you. Everyone else doesn't experience that. Right. So it is a subjectivity thing. Right. I like the idea of right and wrong. I, I like the idea of not having a choice. If you walk in, if you're hungry and you walk in to buy a sandwich and there's 100 sandwiches, it takes 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. If there's one sandwich, 
Isn't life easier mm -hmm. sometimes? Yeah. So all this subjectiveness and all this choice and all this garbage, sometimes when I'm like, okay, I want to be a good person. I want a framework to adhere to that makes me a good person. Well, this is very clear. Mm -hmm. Yes, no, easy. Do you have, do you have like... For a self-proclaimed capitalist, that sounded kind of communist. What he said just there. <laughs> <laughs> Look at all these things. I was thinking about the Ferraris yeah. he owns. <laughs> When he was saying yeah. that, I was like, hmm, that's yeah, interesting. Like, Look, I love all these <laughs> options for myself, but for other people, you know, how many sandwiches right. do you need? Just give just give people the ham and cheese <laughs> sandwich. That is it. I give everyone the same thing. <laughs> yeah. Embodied experiences of God. Like, do you, do you relate to God in that way? Uh, you know, I want to say supernatural, but um, like, do you feel God? I absolutely feel him, and there's certain times where I may feel particularly energetic. When do you feel God? So, usually when I'm feeling powerful. Uh-huh. There's been times I was in jail, and I just got up, and I just felt like, you know what, yeah, like, just <laughs> shadow boxed a bit. I don't know. I just, <laughs> yeah. It's like you just yeah. felt it. Like, I'm, I'm, I'll be okay. I will yeah. win. Yeah. I, I don't feel God when I'm sad or something like that. I think that... The whole idea of spirituality, and I believe God himself, he wants the best for you. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting, yeah, how we're tying religion to, to my worldviews, because my worldviews were the same before religion. I guess before it was the cosmos, or just the way the universe works, or light, dark, yin, yang, etc. I still say these things, but now I attribute a lot more of it to spirituality, a lot more of it mm -hmm. to God. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I chose Islam because it's firm, and I believe that I'm a person with firm principles. So I'm obviously going to liken myself or I'm going to feel an affinity to a religion that has firm principles yeah. because that's who I am as a person. Mm -hmm. I'm a person who's principled, yes, no. Uh, and I have no problem with people sitting with me and saying, what you're saying is bigoted or what you're saying is wrong or what you're saying is insensitive. Mm -hmm. I think Islam also has a similar issue. Yeah, I think you also chose the winning team. Oh, it's completely the winning team. <laughs> I mean, it's the winning team. Yeah. Because, and it's the winning team. And I didn't choose it because it's the winning team. It's just, it's just the winning team because it has principles. Yeah, I agree. And unfortunately, when you have no principles, if you stick up, if you don't believe in it, if you have no hard line, if you'll accept anything, then you don't believe in anything. Yeah. As soon as you'll accept anything, then you have no hardcore beliefs. Mm -hmm. you have, if you have any set of principles or you have any things you believe in, there's going to end up being a barrier. And the people who fall outside of those barriers are going to be offended by it. Mm -hmm. That's the reality of it. Mm -hmm. If you have a religion or a belief system that doesn't offend anybody, mm -hmm. then it's not a religious or belief system. That's, that's my view. So yeah. Okay, that is actually a good stop because that was the end of that clip. <laughs> I'm just going to put in cool. part three. Let me know when you can see that. Offend anybody, mm -hmm. then it's not a religious or belief system. That's, that's my view. So yeah, I chose the winning team because I think more and more people are starting to understand how important good. God is yeah. in society. We're, this is the first time in human history we're testing society without God. And what do we have? We have evil. Yeah. We have Satanism. We have degeneracy, mm -hmm. and I think... Well, I'll just say that, um, just as an anthropological aside, this is so silly. <laughs> this point is so silly to me. It's like, just interrogating that last claim, this is the first time in human history we've found ourse ourselves like without God. It's just like, you just spent 10 minutes talking about how everyone has a God. Yeah. It's like, which, which one is yeah. it? <laughs> you know, so... Yeah, just spotting the, again, when you have a rationalization, if rationalization is your only tool, then it will just shift. It will just, it will just like turn according to whatever, it will turn in service of whatever you're, you, whatever point yeah. you want to make. 
<laughs> even though it contradicts the last point you just said. Because on some level, you're not fully here. You're thinking, how do I win, right? How do I win through rationalization? But you're not actually present with everything that you're saying, because if you were, you would start to see the limitations, paradoxes, contradictions of what you've said in the past 10 or yeah. 15 minutes. You and know? I, f- I forget where I saw this, but I, I think it was a statistic saying that globally, there's never been a higher percentage of religious people per capita. Like, w- w- like <laughs> if you take into account, not just the United States, but us as a whole, yeah. there's never been a higher percentage of religious people to live since we've been keeping track of the data. So as a whole, we're pretty religious as a planet. Yeah. yeah. Also, Tom Holland wrote a book called Dominion about Christianity and about how both right-wing and left-wing political issues come out Mm -hmm. of different takes on Christianity. So an argument could be made that a lot of the, the things that Andrew is critical of, specifically on the left, are actually even themselves byproducts of a Christian mm, world. That's crazy how he had all that time to be a philosopher and play Spider-Man. That is absolutely <laughs> incredible. <laughs> Different Tom Holland. I'm a big fan of his work. <laughs> that most people are starting to understand that God is really needed. When I was young, I used to make fun of what Bible bashers. Let's make fun of them. Yeah. And now I'm like, we need more. Yeah. Where are they? <laughs> we need more Bible bashers. So, uh, yeah, and I, I guess I certainly feel more powerful since I've reverted, but I always felt powerful anyway. But I guess now, instead of just believing it's the cosmic <laughs> nature of the universe or... Let me change that. I always felt a strong affinity to my last name and my ancestors. So I always had, a, to a degree, a spiritual aspect to where I got my strength. I always felt like, well, my dad is watching me. Mm. Or my ancestors tried very hard for me to be born, so I can't disappoint them. So I've always had this spiritualistic side. Like I can't, my, imagine the disappointment my ancestors would feel if they fought saber-toothed tigers and survived World War II and went through all the garbage they went through just for my father to be born and then he suffered like he suffered to raise me, for me to be raised and become the most famous man in the world and call myself Top G and then cry when I went to jail. Mm-hmm. What am I, what, I mean, what kind of bitch? What am I gonna be, oh, wah. No. I go to jail with my head held high. I have to say two things about this. One is that I really find the idea of being connected to your ancestors super sacred and super cool and super like deeply important. Um, And I feel the same connection to my ancestors as well. I have no idea what that has to do with crying though. Like the, the one has nothing to do with the other unless, unless your perception of yourself, and this is certainly true for Andrew and so far as what everything I know about him, it's like the reason why he doesn't want to cry or the reason why he feels that crying is like disrespectful is because that is what his ancestors, particularly his father, mm. told him, <laughs> right? But like someone who doesn't exist subjectively in from the perspective of Andrew, given his upbringing, given all the things he experienced, given his relationship with his father, like it took all of those factors for him to have the relationship that he has today with crying. But someone who didn't have that upbringing, didn't have that lifestyle, didn't experience, quite frankly, the verbal abuse that came from Andrew's father would not have that same relationship mm. with crying. And that's a slight, that's a slight illustration of looking at something subjectively versus looking at something 
at least somewhat objectively. It's like, he thinks that this is objective. He thinks that his relationship to crying is objective. Mm. But it's it's been shaped and molded by all these other people who came before him and how they condition him to have that relationship in the first place. And his mental model does not allow for him currently. His mental model does not allow for him to yeah. see that. I feel like this whole conversation is leading up to that scene in Goodwill Hunting where David Sutton is his, David Sutton is his Robin <laughs> <Yeah>. Williams. <laughs> <laughs> and Andrew Tate is Matt Damon and yeah. David Sutton just goes it's not your fault and he and Tate and Tate goes yeah. shut the shut up shut up it's, it's like, not I your know. fault I know I know no 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 it's not your fault and then he starts fucking I, I, yeah, I, I feel like <laughs> there there are multiple parts of this interview where that scene from Good Will Hunting is played in my mind with the Robin Williams, Matt Damon dynamic. So that would be a, absolutely electric yeah. if, if that's how the if that's how the conversation <laughs> ends. <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to give it away. I'm not going to say it does or doesn't yeah. happen in that way. <laughs> and if they put me in jail for the next 20 years, I'll walk in there with my head held high. And if anybody sees me, I'm not going to be a broken man. I refuse to be a broken man. It's disrespectful to everybody who ever died or tried hard for me to be raised for me to emerge from this difficulty as a broken person. Yeah. That's Can you pause it again? Sorry, I just, re- I just yeah. remembered something. So I read a book about Tate's father that I forgot the name of, but <laughs> I took. it was written about mm. his father by a friend of his father who was like a chess. His father was a, was a, a famous chess player, and so he knew a lot of people who were mm. chess players. And... Um, I'm just trying to see because he's saying that he doesn't he doesn't want to um, he doesn't want to disappoint his father and crying would disappoint his father but there's this interesting quote I'll read the first one this is about Andrew's mm. grandfather thinking of Andrew's grandfather and how his, his grandfather affected his father due to the disciplinary methods of Emory Sr. Dennis would come to deeply resent his father. Emery Sr. was dishing out the same brutal punishment he received from his own father back in rural Georgia. Much later, would Dennis say about his father, quote, only a grandchild named after him, only a grandchild named after him, he's mm-hmm. talking about Andrew, only a grandchild named after him calmed his nerves. So just to paint the picture of the generational, I mean, you know, Andrew's talking about like the sacredness of people who have come before you, but just to give the audience a broader understanding of the Tate men and what it's been like from a disciplinarian perspective to be raised in that particular mm. environment. I will also I will also read this is interesting. Again, keep in mind that Andrew's compl- Andrew is saying he would never, God forbid, be a bitch and yeah. cry. This is a poem from his father. This is a poem that his father wrote in 2010. It's it's entitled Losing Game. It says, The broken wills of a system as it halts, stops, and starts. The broken minds of our frenemies, wasted lives, distracted hearts. The bloody knives of the abattoir, spinning blades and moving parts. The hooded eyes of the assassin, hidden hand with poison darts. Yet destiny and father time do keep danger in its place. A hero's stalwart body, the strongest mind with flawless grace. 
1,000 scars and wounded pride, a wizened look upon the face, an endless task, a lonely road with all friends gone without mm. a trace. The harshest test of man's resolve, the tears run dry deep in the night, the longest days of plaintive voice with only shadows left to fight. Mm, Remember we talked about yeah. shadow boxing. The message lost into the wind, no chance to prove a cause so right. The sad parade of heroes lost their corpses rot beyond our sight. And through it all, the polished fools do persist with callous lies. There's no one buried here. They shout over the buzzing of the flies. Brave girls and boys take up the cause, the best that money buys. I stand alone, I tell the truth, and yet they still ignore my cries. This is Andrew Tate's father, right? Talk, pinning a, a poem about war. And you can see that he's poetic and he's emotional and he has an emotional range, right? And he's talking about the experience of yeah. crying. So I just want to, I bring this up because I think a lot of times, and I include myself in this, we're, we're on social media and we have, whether it's dozens of followers, followers, excuse me, hundreds of thousands of followers, millions of followers when it comes to Andrew Tate, we can put on this persona and this persona can block us from expressing our humanity. And I think that that's a little bit of what's happening with Andrew here. And I think it's important that people remember that Andrew's a human being and his father was a human being and his grandfather was a human being. And at the end of the day, we are dealing with human beings. And to even, even though, you know, myself included, deeply disagree with some of the ways in which Andrew has been showing up online and whatever, just like center the humanity in all of the centering mm. the humanity of the Tate man is very, very important in this conversation. Yeah, it's it sounds like Tate's father had that goth teenager inside of him where, and I feel like everyone has that to, to some yeah. extent, and we choose whether or not we show it and when we show it. And obviously, Tate's father felt emotional based on what he was writing in his poems. And I don't know exactly how much he would show that in front of his sons or yeah. in front of his friends and maybe Tate does Andrew Tate doesn't even remember because he was young when all this was happening mm. but sure. yeah I feel we all have that sort of angsty sad loner aspect of ourselves myself included and we vent it and sometimes it stays in a journal and, and maybe Tate's yeah. father never really shared that side of himself with Andrew mm. and Tristan and they just assumed that the father didn't have that side at all because he never shared it but then he he would tuck them in at night and say be strong man never cry whatever and then he'd go yeah. and then he'd go to his <laughs> journal and put on put on some put on yeah. some my chemical romance <laughs> and then write <laughs> right you know i cried in the closet today three times and yeah <laughs> i couldn't do it in front of my sons and i you know mm. welcome to the black parade and like all all this all all yeah. this <laughs> all this stuff that everyone feels as a human being and it, it's a shame yeah. if 
Andrew Tate and Tristan Tate were never able to see that side of their father. And, and as a side note, was the book called The Life and Games of Emery Tate, Chess Warrior? Because that's what... Okay. Yes, it was. Okay, that's yeah, that's book. what came up. I did, I just searched <laughs> Emery Tate book, and that's what came up. When I, when I first learned about Andrew Tate, I was like, who are his parents? And I immediately... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> did like a deep like deep internet rabbit yeah. hole search to find something about his parents and that's I mean, what I came thir- up with. 39 across, ratings, 4.8 so. stars. Pretty pretty good. There you go. Pretty exceptional read. There you go. All right. When a man sits and says to me he's broken or he's depressed or he's sad, etc., that's selfishness. You have shit to do. Yeah. And you have people to be respectful to, including people who are no longer here. I don't have time. They can put me in solitary confinement for 20 years, and when I walk out of there, and the first podcast I do, I refuse to be called broken. I refuse. And that's because I feel like I had a duty to my ancestors, and now I feel like I have a duty to my ancestors and a duty to God. Mm-hmm. So I've always felt that. And I, if I have to say, could... after, after reading that poem, it feels so weird to hear him. It feels even more weird to hear him say, yeah. to say those things. Yeah, the juxtaposition of all the emotion and then to hear him and embody the warrior ethos is, is jarring. Yeah. I feel like you're fulfilling your duty, that your father would be proud of you. I absolutely believe he'd be extremely powerful, right. proud of me. I think I'm doing the best I can possibly do. And there's something that people say, you tried your best. And that's true. But a lot of people overuse it. Mm-hmm. People say, oh, well, you didn't get it, but you tried your best. 99% of the time, they didn't try their best. Mm. People don't actually try very hard for things anymore. I am truly, genuinely trying my best. I don't waste a minute of my day. Mm-hmm. Before this podcast, as I set up cameras, I'm working. Mm-hmm. I don't waste a minute of my day. I do right. not miss a training session. Right. I do not miss an email. I do not make mistakes. I no longer, like, I'm on it. So I'm trying my absolute best. If I fail for the first time in human history, <laughs> then I fail. But at least I get the satisfaction in my heart of knowing I I, I love how he said, if I fail for the first time in human history, not in Andrew Tate's history. <laughs> like I, I, I am acting on behalf of humanity. And that it's so funny because he's like, he was saying earlier how he kept saying Icarus, but I'm like, are you heeding your own warning? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like you're perceiving yourself as the carrier of the mm. human race like that's some megalomania and that's yeah. a distortion that's a recipe for self-deception actually really tried my best mm-hmm. most people don't get to get that satisfaction because they know deep down they could have tried a bit harder whereas if i end up in jail i'll be like andrew you did everything you could have done so you that gives you a level of peace i did my best my ancestors are proud of me god is proud of me i did my absolute best I couldn't have possibly done better. And I got hit with a, a lucky punch, and that's life. And all I can do is just smile regardless. Are your, your oration skills, is that an art, do you think? I think that if you don't have the ability to make other people understand exactly what you think, that you're going to struggle. But is it, is, it, is it an art? Like, it, when I watched you with PBD, and you got in these zones, and you, did, you do it all the time, I and mean, you're doing it right now, you get in these zones where it's just like, you're just flowing. I mean, that's, it's almost, you can say it's a God state, right? It's a flow state. Yeah. And it must feel really good. It does. Yeah. Like, it feels good that you never run out of things to say. And it feels good that I already have 10 things I want to say lined up before right. I say the first ones. And you know how to say them perfectly. And your voice is clear and resonant. And you're, you're embodied in it. It's a skill. It's a skill. Well, it's a, but it's almost like an art. Because I was watching you and I was thinking, this is like watching 
you know, Charlie Parker play the sax or Michael Jordan play basketball. I mean, you really, and, and people might say, oh, those are exaggerations, but I don't, I don't think so. I don't, I don't know that I've seen somebody who's able to do what you do. But that's emotional. So we'll talk about how I'm actually quite a sensitive person. Yeah. I think the reason people believe what I say is because they can feel that I feel when I talk. Yes. And it's because I feel things. Yes. So I'm not a cold person at all. I'm just a person with a lot of emotion that I try and control and channel in the correct directions. But I think that, yes, it's a superpower to a degree. Well, I think that's why people are, one of the reasons that people are so drawn to you because you let whatever wants to come through, come through. And it's also why so many people hate me. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Because yeah. there's no light without dark. Yeah. There's yeah. no, you know, there's no yeah. joy without pain. You can't have a rainbow without a little rain. That's how it goes. Mm -hmm. So I think that it's definitely, a superpower for life. It's something I'd encourage every man to learn how to do. Yeah. It's certainly something worth practicing. It's the reason I don't learn another language because mm -hmm. I haven't mastered English yet. Right. So I refuse to learn another language. Yeah. I, I can't imagine me and my personality and Andrew Tate stuttering in Spanish. Mm -hmm. It just mm -hmm. be like, what is this garbage? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't have time. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah. I will only speak English for the rest of my human years. That's it. Because yeah. I have not learned every word in the dictionary yet. Yeah. But yeah, I guess to a degree it's a superpower. It's extremely beneficial mm -hmm. in all aspects of life, especially relationships. I'm not going to lie. It's very, I don't argue with women very often because any woman who respects me and listens to me, I can very quickly and compendiously explain exactly why I'm correct. It's maybe the most powerful skill. It, the most powerful thing about it is there's, there's two levels to it. One, <laughs> making people understand exactly what you think. Yes. And the second one is making them think what you think. Right, right, right. And if you can do the second one. Do you like to make people think what you think? Like, like what, like, cause you have a lot of influence Yeah, and that's got to feel good. You're influencing people. You have this worldview. It's, it's a powerful worldview. It's got, you know, yeah. all these things. And so you want to influence other people in some way to, to adopt that. I think that charity, even of itself, I think charity is probably one of the most selfish things you can do, mm -hmm. which most people say, I'm giving money. I, I give $25 million a year. There's a website, takepledge.com. You can see it. And I feed children all across war-torn countries, mainly in the Islamic world and in Africa. Am I doing that for the children? Yes. But I also feel great. I feel good for doing yeah, of that. Of course. Yeah. So there's, yeah, it, there's, yeah. it's not a selfless act. No, nothing selfless. Nothing it selfless. And it shouldn't be. And it shouldn't be. That's right. So when I'm helping all these people out here, I'm not doing it because I'm some philanthropist. I feel good helping people and people sending me emails saying, you changed my life. I, I feel good about it. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to sit here and pretend I'm just Mr. Philanthropist and yeah. I just care about the world. Yeah. No, I like helping people because I feel good about doing it. It makes me feel good inside. Yeah which is why I do it. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I use my power to feel good. And I think the best, the easiest way to feel good is to make others feel good. I believe that humans exist that way and I think that's why we're societal animals. Mm -hmm. Even in jail, when I felt my worst, my goal was to make someone else smile. Because if I can make someone else smile, I would smile. <laughs> so it, it, on my worst days, uh -huh. I was my most charming, uh -huh. my most energetic, uh -huh. my most interesting, my most talkative. Yeah. I was happiest on my worst day uh -huh. because I decided that's how I have to be to stop myself feeling bad because I decided. I also feel like, you know, it's kind of interesting. No one's emotionless and I certainly feel things. And I'm going to come up with a theory, which you're going to call complete garbage <laughs> because I am not qualified, but this is my theory. Yeah, go for it. I believe that emotional energy is a lot like a bucket of water. Mm -hmm. You have all this emotional energy, right? You have a bucket of water. And then you have a bunch of different holes you can pour it down. 
So I believe if you wake up one day and you feel particularly depressed, you don't feel depressed. You just have a lot of emotional energy that day. Some days you don't have that much emotional energy and life is pretty calm. But some days you wake up and you have this big bucket of water and the superpower is deciding which emotion you're gonna put it in. Not to not feel the energy, but to decide which emotion you're gonna put it in. And I think that's my superpower. I don't have the superpower of being able to stop myself feeling things. Yeah. I have the superpower of being able to choose how I use that energy and what I decide to feel. And then if you want to be hyper successful as a person, you have to be very careful to avoid the happy hole because happy is what everyone thinks they would choose. If you had this emotional energy and could choose any emotion, you'd choose happy. But if you choose happy, you don't get much done. What do you choose? I choose, if I had to choose how I wanted to feel all the time, I would choose proud. And proud means you have to work. Proud means you have to do things, you have right. to achieve things. Right. If you want to be proud and be realistic, you have to do fantastic things. So my default favorite emotion is proud. Right. That's how I, I'm happiest when I feel proud about anything. Well, and the organism releases dopamine in the brain when we do hard work. Which is why I, I just want to say, I, I do really love that analogy of having the buckets of water and then getting decide, getting to decide which emotion you pour that into at the start of the day or the start of an experience. Because I, I have, yeah, I feel like the longer that I've had a meditation practice, which is about five years at this point, I feel mm -hmm. the energy building up in my body from a physical standpoint. And I used to, I used to assign that as, oh, I feel sad right now, or I feel extremely excited or depressed, whatever it was. And, and now I do try to notice it more as energy and then channel. I don't use the same hmm. analogy as tape, but I, I, I try to channel it into the most useful thing for what I'm about to do. So if I have energy before a podcast, and I go, okay, this is nervous energy, then I might be more nervous going into the podcast. But if I just say, oh, no, this is because I'm excited for the podcast, then I start to flip my mentality and I feel sure. more excited, which I feel like that's the classic example of this is nervous versus excited. So I, so I do, yeah. I, I do like that analogy. I also, I also feel like it's interesting that he chose proud as the most important yeah. <laughs> <laughs> emotion that he's going to pour his energy into because because i would think that it would be grateful or mm -hmm. focused or i was i wasn't expecting proud mm -hmm. yeah i mean I, I couldn't help but immediately be transported to the scene in avatar the last airbender where uncle iroh is trying to teach his his uh nephew zuko to chill basically mm. and <laughs> he says he says to Zuko like he can tell that Zuko feels shame and Zuko says like I don't feel shame I feel proud I have so much pride and then Uncle Iroh says pride is not the opposite of shame but its source mm. pride is not the opposite of shame but its source and I also think about Andrew's constant warnings about or against uh, Icarus, right? And he, and David constantly asking him, is that hubris? Is that hubris? Now, I do recognize there's another part of pride that is like, yes, you're, you're, 
you become proud that you've accomplished something, right? Like you're proud that you have obtained self-mastery or you're proud that you have accomplished a goal of some sort. It sort of goes hand in hand with the competitive mindset. They're like, oh, there's a obstacle in front of me. Am I able to overcome it? I am great. Now I'm proud. And that requires, but the capacity to do that requires like hard work. And so I get that angle, but I think it's interesting that he said pride given everything else he said, (laughs) or he said proud, but I couldn't help but, but hear pride. Yeah. I can see the connection between pride and shame. Cause if I think back to a lot of the shameful moments in my life, the precedent to those was me feeling too proud or, too too full of ego i was so hyped up that i thought i could do no wrong and and then i ended up doing Mm. something that i was ashamed of so i I do see that link that's that's a great way to put it that that link from avatar isn't pride one of the seven deadly sins too because he said he's a very religious guy so yes (laughs) i would think that if he yes if he was well versed in religion or if he was you know, as I don't know if, if the seven deadly sins come up in Islam, I haven't read the Quran, but it seems like it, it seems like if if he's a very religious guy, he would avoid having the emotion that he puts the most energy into as one of the seven deadly sins. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. curious for sure. I have to win all the yeah. time. Yeah. I, I love proud to feel good. You you to feel feel good. good. Yeah. I don't like happy. If I feel happy. Giddish happiness, like a child or like a <laughs> females usually default to happy. They don't care how they get there. They just want to get there. Right. They just want to feel happy. Right. I avoid the happy hole because I think people who are desperate to only feel happy are the ones who are addicts, you know, gambling addicts, yeah. drug addicts, drink too much, yeah. do dumb shit. It's all temporary, no delayed gratification. That's how you destroy your life choosing the happy hole. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Can you pause we were talking earlier about jail and how when I felt. I just think that's interesting. That's an interesting statement given Andrew's ethical system when it comes to pursuing women and uh pursuing cars and pursuing wealth it's like he says that women just want happiness and that is you run the risk of falling into the happy hole and then you can become an addict but like arguably if your entire worldview is predicated upon pursuit of cars pursuit of women pursuit of money to the point where you can't stop or you couldn't stop technically speaking this is a type of addiction. I mean, this is sort of my observation. I, I've told you about this with um, mm. Wolf of Wall Street, where like the guys in Wolf of Wall Street, yes, they're doing terrible things, and they're also clearly addicts. Yeah, <laughs> right. They're like addicted to this lifestyle, and it's compensating for something, feelings of worthlessness if they didn't have that lifestyle. So I think this is a blind spot that Andrew isn't seeing that how he operates on a similar frequency in his own life. It might be a blessing. Yeah, I'd be interested to see what Andrew Tate thinks of someone like Jordan Belfort when Jordan Belfort was at the height of his mm. Wolf of Wall Street era when he was pulling in all that cash, women. But would he look at Jordan Belfort and think, this is the epitome of a man. This is the epitome of how to use your energy. Right. And according to a lot of what he says so far, that is that is the peak of manhood maybe mm-hmm. if jordan belfort knew how to fight then that would be <laughs> yeah maybe yeah, a little bit jordan extra. belfort would be his ultimate counterpart J- jordan belfort knowing mma yeah. <laughs> yeah particularly bad i'd wake up with a whole bunch of emotional energy 
it's unchanneled. It's a bit wild. So I guess that can be perceived as sad yeah, you're or depressed. Routine, you're out of your routine. So I would sit and go, okay, I have all this emotional energy today. Where am I going to put it? And I'd put it in a place where perhaps on that day I might feel happy or perhaps I'd choose something else, but I would try my very best to take all the energy and put it into a place where the feeling that emotion was the most competitive emotion or it was the perfect emotion for me to be as competitive as possible in that particular scenario. Mm -hmm. So yeah, on days where I woke up and I felt a little bit sad, I'd be like, okay, I, I'm going to turn the charm on today. I'm going to make everybody laugh. Right. And by the end of the day, I felt fantastic. Do you think God wants to break you? <laughs> if God wants to break me, he's going to do it. Deep question. <laughs> because we said, God right? The right? Here the, there must be death and rebirth. So what, like something, you have to be broken. At some point, you must be broken. You, you can't fulfill your mission without being broken. And whatever that is, it has to terrify you. But can't I be semi-broken or semi-close no. to broken and back from the edge? Death back from the edge? Death and rebirth. That's, that's the archetype, right? And what does that require? It, goes, it goes, means going into the cave and facing your dragon, which is your deepest fear, yeah. and feeling like it's going to kill you, and then entering into the void of nothingness and then coming out the other side, reborn. And in that place where you're reborn, you're going to know things that you did not know sitting right here. But and I you're going to have a much bigger perspective, right? I mean, you, you agree with that template, right? I agree with it, but I feel like I can just, I don't feel like get I- Get around that? Not get around it, but I don't ever have to fully <laughs> die. Like, I, I can just come close enough, enough times. Like, I'm not going to under- not he sounds like me when I'm at a music festival and my friends are trying to get me to do a full <laughs> dose of psychedelics. And I just go, can I just do one gram and kind of get the same effect as a heroic dose? Yeah. Do I have to take five with you guys? I feel like I could kind of just dip my toe in and get a feeling for the edge. <laughs> yeah, that's... um. I think this is such a such a beautiful moment in this interview. It's it's sort of like almost as if David emerged as a kind of father figure to Andrew. Where he was like, "I don't do I have to like do I do I really have to?" Yeah. You know. And also, I'm reading this book, Iron John, by Robert Bly, which is the subtitle is a book about men. And um, there's a chapter on wounds and how. In many ancient culture stories of of the transition that a young boy must make from adolescence to adulthood or from um, being sort of like a prince to a king requires wounding. So there's like these motifs that are repeated in cultural stories from all around the world that basically suggest what David is suggesting here, which is that in order to become king and it's actually not even gendered in order to become queen you must be able to be wounded and the reason for that is when you are wounded this opens the door for the soul to come in mm. this opens the door for sorrow to come in yeah <laughs> this opens the door for sadness to come in and it it opens a capacity for deep longing, uh, a capacity for uh, being able to hold loss in a way that is not only quote unquote useful, yeah. <laughs> as as Andrew said, 
but that connects you to the whole of humanity. To be able to experience that wound, to be able to experience that loss is actually what qualifies mm. you to become king. And in, in the absence of that, you're not qualified. Yeah, yeah that, that's a great point. And, and you also made a great point about the father-child dynamic switch because it was a childlike response from Tate where a dad goes, you have to go to your yeah. room right now. And the kid goes, do I have to? Do I really have to? And there yeah. was that sort of switch on a dime to the Tate becoming yeah. a child and David Sutton reclaiming his father figure role. No, of course, yeah. of course. But I'm not going to underplay how significantly difficult my jail experience was. Yeah, because you, and, do, and you also, do talk about like how tough you were, you managed it. And I guess I'm, I'm and which is, I believe that I'm not. Yeah. But, you know, there had to be moments where you're just like... It was terrible. Despair. No, it was absolutely or, terrible. Or fear, or, or like... But this is very interesting into your death and rebirth point. Yeah. Because when it felt completely terrible, I do have the emotional control to not feel that. But I decided to let myself feel it because I felt like I wouldn't learn as much That's if right. I turned my brain off. That's right. So we, I've talked on PBD about Tristan. Tristan and I have the same superpower. Tristan didn't care about jail. He didn't care. He didn't, or he, he, he acted like Maybe he didn't care. He acted like he didn't yeah. care. But that was his coping mechanism. Sure. Don't care about jail. I decided, no, I'm going to care. I'm going to feel everything. I'm going to allow myself to feel these negative emotions because I feel like I will learn more. I could have done what Tristan did. I could have woke up and said, one day or later, they'll let me out. Still rich. Give a fuck. Right. Could have done that. I didn't do that. And jail, that's why he sleeps. That's why I have nightmares. Because I don't believe his jail experience was that traumatic because... He, he was very, he turned his brain off to it. Really? And, and that is a superpower. Yes. And, and I do have that power. If I went to war, I could go to war and watch all my friends be blown to pieces and still fight. Yeah. I would still be capable. I can turn my brain off if I have to, but I decided not to because I felt that feeling things would teach me more, which is why I'm kind of arguing your point about death and rebirth because I feel like I don't have to fully break. I just have to get close enough to the edge to learn something why and come break? back. Why not break? Because if I break, then... There's too well, much. Know. My you empire might fall. Then. You don't know. That's well, exactly. You don't know. I don't know. And that's scary. It is scary. Yeah. So why would so I? That's why you don't want to break. Completely. It's scary. I don't want to lose what I have. Yeah. Mentally. But that physically, financially. Yeah, but that attachment. What would God say to that attachment? I don't want to lose what I have. But okay, I don't want to lose what I have because I also have a responsibility for others. I, I, let me tell you something. If if my mind broke. And I couldn't come back from that. <laughs> What's more important, your family or God? He's does so God good at this. I don't know. He's asked. <laughs> you asked a question. And if he does, yeah. I will break. Right. Right? Well, but you won't have a choice. I won't have a choice. But, but jail itself was, was terrible. Like, we're talking about vulnerability. I can sit and explain all the things I struggle with in jail. It was absolutely terrible. And I think a lot of people who are watching this, I think they need to keep in mind, I wasn't in jail. I was in Romanian jail. Which is, what's the difference? Well, it's the poorest country in Europe and it was built during communism right. and it's basically designed to torture you. Cockroaches, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not like jail, like we imagine jail. I don't want to insult the Romanian justice system. I don't want to insult any Romanians. I'm still within the confines of Romania, but I think most people at home understand what I'm talking about. I didn't have yard time. I didn't have any friends. I was in a room for 93 days. I did not leave that room unless I was being dragged to court in a language I didn't understand to be sent back to the room. Yeah, it was hard. I did a four-day vision quest, four days, four nights, no food or water out in the mountains, like in a restricted area, like just like oh. a prison cell. And that was, took me to my edge. So I can't even imagine and yeah, 93 days. Yeah, I mean, it's terrible. And you don't know how long you're going to be in there for. Yeah. 
and you have no control over anything. And uh, you don't sleep very well. People think you just sleep it off, but you can't. The jail is very loud. Mm. There's a lot of distressed people in there, a lot the of upset people. The energy is sad. Yeah, it's, sad. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a bad place to be. But I knew that my only option was to deal with it. So I knew that not handling it wasn't an option. So if not handling it, it's not an option. The only option left is handling it. So yeah. you just have to find the best way to do it. Yeah. And I certainly allowed myself to feel a lot of emotions in there that I could have probably black, blocked out so that I could learn as many lessons as possible. And I've learned a lot of things. But I would say that, I mean, all in all, I understood as a man, you need to have a strong body so you're not attacked by anyone else and a strong mind so you don't attack yourself. And I think jail in many ways is just pressurized life. And if you feel a little bit angry outside of jail, you'll be very angry in jail. It's pressurized life and you can't distract yourself with anything. Mm -hmm. Most people, if you feel angry right now, you'd be like, oh, that pissed me off. And then you got your phone and talk to someone else about something else, you distract yourself, but you're left alone with your thoughts and you can't distract yourself. And uh, God decided to put me in there to learn some things. And I think it just confirmed a bunch of things I already knew. And I think it was a chance for me to prove to him and to prove to myself I'm not full of shit. And I think that that was- Did you worry that you were full of shit? Never. But it's good when you get t tested. <laughs> no, but this is actually the truth. Uh, I, 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 top G, right? It's a name, it's a nickname, blah, 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 t top G. The, the basic premise behind it and why I'm idolized by all these young men, especially is I'm top G, the number one G, the, the guy who can do anything, he's the guy. I never for a second when I was saying it didn't mean it. I never for a second when I was saying it thought I was full of shit. Mm -hmm. So God was like, okay, let's find out if he's full of shit. Right. And I was placed there and I said, like, all right, this is a chance for me to prove to myself and prove to God and prove to the man watching on the, to the prison guards and prove to everyone else, my ancestors, that I'm not full of shit. I had a sense of duty in there and I feel like I performed it exceptionally. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter if they kept me in there for three months or three years or 30 years. I have to perform, that's who I am. And I will default to rationalizing as you said, <laughs> whatever it takes, I will come up with any rationale yeah. and I will say it in any way which is interesting and engaging and convincing enough to the outside world and to myself to install it in my brain that allows me to compete. That's just what I'm gonna do because I don't want to lose anything ever. Yeah. And yeah, I, life, perhaps if we wanna extrapolate this out, perhaps God's trying to break all of us. Maybe life is a big competition of who breaks last. Uh -huh, uh -huh. I would actually argue <laughs> I would argue, yeah. and I said this before, that the number one indicator of a man's success is his ability to deal with stress. I don't think it's IQ. I don't think it's physical capability. I don't think it's anything. If you take a man who can deal with a bunch of stress, he's gonna be more successful than a man who can deal with less stress. How much stress you can put up with has a direct correlation to the kind of life you're gonna live. Most people who want my life don't have my life because they couldn't handle my life. Yeah. Can you pause for a second? It's interesting. I was just thinking about statistics when it comes to like the rate at which men die from certain diseases like heart disease or heart attacks or suicide, which would be from the from the disease of like mental illness mm. or depression and stuff like that. And I'm also thinking of Jason Riley's observations that he talks about on The Breakfast Club, how he had a friend who had this similar mentality of like never breaking and you know ended up dropping dead from a heart attack at 50 55 mm. 56 years old so it's like there's a kind of hmm, there's a kind of re relationship paradoxical relationship ironic relationship between andrew claiming to have good advice for men but not interrogating whether that advice which has been perpetuated by many people far before you know andrew mm. was born by many men in particular not really interrogating 
whether that same advice is actually contributing to men dying at higher rates from certain diseases because they didn't allow mm. themselves to break. Like one of the things that Jason Riley says is that like crying releases stress hormones. It's actually a very natural way for the body to heal itself in certain contexts. And if you never allow yourself to do that because you see it as breaking down and you define your sense of self as a man as never breaking down, eventually the Pied Piper will come and there will be a lot to pay. Yeah. So Yeah, never having that release. And and he's talking about he's talking about yeah. life is a competition of who can break last. And he's saying it very manly, very directly, assertively. But if you think about it, if your life is a competition of who can break last, that makes me think about everyone carrying a bunch of glass bowls in their hands and you're getting pushed around by life. And mm. it's this very delicate, anxiety-provoking thing of, oh my God, if I break at all, if I let this even drop or get a small crack in the yeah. side that is something that's gonna make me lose life instead of look Isn't yeah very, very fragile, fragile feminine mentality and he's mm. uh you, I, I think a good judge of how you how fulfilling a life that you've lived is wading through the brokenness and coming out the other side mm -hmm. much more sturdy and much more hardened than what you the previous version of you was and being death and reborn like mm -hmm. david sutton says and then you know the same thing comes along and it can't break you because you're a little bit harder rather than never breaking at all but right. then you also never get hardened you never spend any time walking through that fire yeah you don't get you don't actually get stronger if you if you perceive the quality of being able to break down as feminine and you have an allergy to the feminine, you never allow yourself to mm. integrate that within your being, then you won't experience the thrill. Yeah. Actually, I would argue it's a thrill of learning how to fall and get back, getting back up. Right. Like if you never do anything that you're not good at, this is like a, so obvious to me, mm. <laughs> not that I'm saying it out loud. If you never pursue something because you don't think you'll be good at it, or you never allow yourself to break down, or you never allow yourself to fall and get back up, then you, you're you actually missing out on a very beautiful part of life. And you're also not going to be as powerful as you mm. want to be, or as you perceive yourself as being. Yeah. I, I wonder if Andrew Tate has ever had a conversation with Mark Manson because Mark Manson has a book called Honest mm -hmm. Attraction and it's about dating, but it can also just be applied to life in general. And Mark Manson talks about how one of the most attractive qualities of a man is the lack of need of approval and thinking and acting boldly. Mm. And the way that Tate is talking about being mm -hmm. a man is I want to... He, he he kept saying, I want to prove to the guard. I want to prove to everyone. I'm going to prove that I'm mm. unbreakable. And he's putting a lot of external right. validation onto his own manhood, where I imagine if he talked to Mark Manson, he might push back a little bit and say, well, what if you acted authentically and boldly within the bounds of how 
you want to act and how you want to think without thinking about how others are going to perceive yeah. it. And then if other people perceive you as weak or they perceive you as less of a man, then that's just how life goes. And there's a, there's a, yeah. there's a quote yeah, from, yeah, yeah. uh, it's, it's called uh, not honest attraction. It's called models attract women through honesty. And there's a quote in there where mm-hmm. Mark Manson writes, you cannot be a powerful and life-changing presence to some people without being a joke or an embarrassment to others. And that ties into the whole acting mm. boldly and the, the not needing approval is that, yes, yeah, some people may think you're a pussy. They may think you're a joke, but that doesn't actually make you a joke. Mm. Yeah, there is a lot of external validation. Uh, that's a, like seeking external validation. That's a part of his, of Andrew's frame, which goes back to to the potential presence of shame that that is underneath him feeling that pride is the highest mm. or the you know the best emotion yeah. that he can feel my life yeah that's why they go i want to be like tate i want fast cars and private jets and all these girls and all these kids and all the blah, blah blah but they couldn't handle it they couldn't deal with the pressure of it which is why they'll never get there because even if they get anywhere near it they'll have a mental breakdown right. So how, how big your life is and how successful you are in the physical realm is directly linked to how much stress you can deal with. And perhaps God's trying to break all of us and he's trying to find all of our limits. Yeah. I think most people at home watching this probably have something going on in their mind right now or something going on in their lives that might break them. Yeah. To me, it would be nothing. To them, it's a big deal. Yeah. So God's out here to break all of us and I want to be the guy who breaks last. I well, love how he just like, he, he reframes the question Right. And he turns it again into comp- competition because that's his mental model. So that he can't help it. Um, and then he goes into compare and contrast. So just like notice these patterns where like every every challenge that is thrown at him is rationalized in service of competition. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's the yeah, script. That's like the factory. He's re- happening automatically and he's really good at doing it and he's really good at disguising that he's doing it but david sutton is just yeah not feeding into the bullshit yeah i can tell it's (laughs) like he's he's doing some jedi mind shit david sutton he's it's gonna for sure (laughs) he's letting it happen for a greater point for sure give us give us to uh, help us evolve to help us grow to help us know him more absolutely so Let's assume that's what God is doing. Mm -hmm. To a degree, he's trying to see where all of us would break. You have two responses to that. You can either be intimidated by the fact that God is out there trying to make your life difficult, or you can be excited by the idea of it and saying, this is my chance to prove myself to God. Right. Which is what I was saying earlier on, the very beginning of our podcast, why I've adopted the mindset where struggle is semi-exciting to me. God is out here trying to ask me questions or put me through scenarios where I get to prove myself to him. And perhaps that's why all the bad things happen. Maybe that's why that girl left you. Maybe that's why he made you love her so much so that she could break your heart and fuck your best friend on purpose so that you, to see how close you could come to breaking. Maybe that's what it's all about. Maybe that's the fun of it. The mantra that I use is- I have a- I have a hot take Mm. here, which is totally unprovable. Those are the perfect takes. I- I think that he's that everything he just said, he's talking about himself. Like, I suspect that something like that or that exact scenario happened to him. I have no idea, I have no mm. way to prove that, but that's my hot. I want to go back a little bit because I missed exactly what he said. I'm going to go back like 10 seconds. Maybe that's why that girl left you. Maybe that's why he made you love her so much uh, okay. so that she could break your heart and fuck your best friend on purpose so that you to see. 
how close you could come to breaking. Maybe that's what it's all about. Well, Maybe that's the fun of it. The monster. Okay. Yeah, I think he's talking yeah. about himself. <laughs> it could be. I, I mean, I've I've definitely projected shit, and I've talked about it like it's happening to someone else, or turn it into a lesson. So it's it's completely possible that this whole thing is a defense mechanism built from one source code that is this completely debilitating experience <laughs> where Tate's brother or best friend fucked his 17-year-old girlfriend who knows like some yeah. shit that happened 20 years ago. That I use is yes, thank you. Whatever comes, whatever comes, yes, thank you. And, and yes is an acceptance to God yeah. and thank you is gratitude for what's happening. And that mindset is, is a kind of surrender to God's will. Yeah. Do you struggle between, I mean, your will yeah. is very strong. Yeah. And I, I can feel the place where you like to impose your will in the world. Yeah. So your will versus God's will. Well, he'll win. <laughs> are you in, are you, but you're in a, are you in a fight with God on some level? Like, not, not literally, but unconsciously uh, between his will and your will? No, I think I'm doing, I think I am doing his, I think I am doing his will, which right. is, is what it takes to uh, be truly successful in the world. I do believe that the moral arc of the universe does bend towards truth. And that's not my saying. I think that's Martin Luther King's. But I think that it bends towards truth and justice in the end. Mm -hmm. I think that the battles we are currently fighting in society, which look hopeless, in the end can, can be won. And I feel like I am doing his will by standing up and telling the truth. I think I'd have to be a complete coward of a man to end up having all of the masculine youth of a planet paying attention to every word I say mm -hmm. and then say, oh, but if I tell them good things, if I help them and help the world by extension, I might get in trouble. Mm -hmm. That made me a bitch. And yeah. that's not who I am. Yeah. So if I think if you give any man worth his salt that degree of power and influence and responsibility, he's going to stand up and say, OK, this is how you should live as a man. And this is how you can make the world a better place, mm -hmm. unless he's afraid of the repercussions by the evil people, right. by the people who are on the other side who are genuinely evil and satanic who are right. out to destroy good and so pause for a second. I just want to point out that earlier he said he's not interested in what mm. is true. He's interested in what is useful. And now he's saying that he's been put on earth by God to tell people the truth. So just like pay attention. We should all pay attention to like the glitches yeah. that are <laughs> rising and, and falling. And bringing here. up that quote by Martin Luther King that the universe bends towards truth and not bends towards usefulness. Right. <laughs> right. True. And I'm not a coward. I've never seen myself as a coward. And in fact, we don't talk about vulnerability. The number one thing I could never exist as is a coward. Mm. I think that's, you won't talk about my biggest fear. It would be knowing I'm a coward, mm. seeing myself as a coward and being very realistic and knowing I was actually a coward. I couldn't, mm. I couldn't accept that because I feel like I would be disappointing all of my ancestors and right. God. Right. And I would have been full of shit all the time I was talking. Now I'm a fake. Now I'm a liar. And I'm none of those things. Right. When I say to the camera and I sit here and talk about depression not being real, I mean what I say because I've lived enough shit to tell you that if depression was real, I would have been depressed. Mm -hmm. And people know that, which is why they listen to me in the first place. Mm -hmm. I would hate to be, to look in the mirror and know I acted like a coward on that scenario. I, I can't be that person. Right. So, But with his powers of rationalization and with him saying that it's not even a possibility, I could never be a coward, he would just rationalize himself out of being a coward by saying that how he acted right. was actually not cowardly because it's not possible for him. <laughs> so again, he would right. he just shifts right. that it's just window. A, it's like a revolving 
door. You know, it's like a, there's a, there's a term for this. It's a logical fallacy that I, it's on the tip of my tongue and I can't remember it. Um, I don't remember the name of it, but it reminds me of his excuse for exploiting men yeah. <laughs> by saying, oh, they're going to be exploited anyway. So, yeah, it's just like a revolving um, machine that moves in service of whatever he wants to be true yeah. about himself. Courage is the highest virtue, I think. You think so? Courage, love. Well, I like to think of myself as a man with plenty of love in his life and a very loving man. I also like to think of myself as an extremely brave person. Mm -hmm. I'm, I've never been a coward, and even just the idea of being a coward is enough to motivate me to do nearly anything. Mm -hmm. So if you were to try and, here we go, vulnerability. If you were to try and manipulate me, how could you manipulate Andrew Tate, one of the smartest people on the face of the planet? Well, you would have to try and convince him that it was the only brave act. Mm -hmm. That's how I could be manipulated. Interesting. Now, I allow manipulation to find out where my enemy wants me to go, use my mind to break the trap, punish the perpetrators. I will allow them to manipulate me, and at the end of their attempt, I will decide whether I agree with their attempt or I destroy their attempt. Right. But that would be give you the best possible chance. Mm -hmm. And I'll give you a perfect example of it. COVID, when on day one, when everyone got locked in their houses and they were talking about Italian hospitals being full and people were dying on the street in China, when everyone believed because it was brand new, day one, me and Tristan decided to fly to Sweden and just run around in nightclubs because it's the only open country. Mm -hmm. Did we do that because we have medical expertise? Did we do that because we were guaranteed to not get sick? Did we do that because we knew something other people didn't know? It was the brave choice. Mm -hmm. The brave choice is to go do something reckless. We might all die. Let's die in a nightclub in Sweden instead of dying in our house. So we always have chosen and defaulted to the brave choice. And part of me, maybe when we talk about it. I love how this is his example of bravery. Yeah. It's like so superficial. It's like there's there's the bravery of like running into war. And, <laughs> and then there's the bravery of like flying to Sweden and partying during COVID. It's like. Okay, yeah, but during I times guess. of COVID, that <laughs> is war. the The battleground, the battleground in COVID is the club dance floor. It's when Levels of Avicii is playing, and you have to decide: <laughs> Do I want to rail that ninth tequila shot and take this girl back and fuck in the face of the entire world dying on this planet spinning through the solar system, or do I want to live right now and 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 take in this moment? So. That is that is the war. It's like, yeah, I see. Not not the nurses on the front no. lines being like, you know, no, 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 no. The, those those heroes, <laughs> those those cowards that are spending time outside of the nightclub working with these with working with these vaccines that you, when you could just take a shot of whiskey and that'll just empty right. out your system. Very simple, yeah. actually. Yeah, that's funny. Excitement. I love when God or life or the universe or whatever you want to call it gives me a chance to be brave. I love when he gives me an opportunity. Mm -hmm. Here's your chance to be brave, Andrew. Here's your chance to show you are that guy. Mm -hmm. Here's your chance to have another story where everyone else would have failed, you would have succeeded. It's, uh, <laughs> it's so funny that he, I'm imagining Tate praying the night that all the other countries shut down and he's asking to god what should i do where should i go and god just whispers in his ear go clubbing at a nightclub in, in sweden <laughs> go bang that hooker go with your brother have a foursome rail as many shots as you can 
and continue <laughs> the struggle of humanity. Go wade into the face of the war. <laughs> At this point, I'm tempted to believe that he's trolling yeah. him. Like, he has to be trolling yeah. him, right? He must be. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> but I don't know. I don't know. Like, is, isn't he? He has to be. <laughs> I, would, I think, yeah. I mean, I... I know Tate can be hilarious when he wants to be, and this would be a you know example yeah. of like I'm going into the battlefield, I'm going clubbing, and especially when he was also <laughs> using all this warrior imagery right before, and then he's like, "Well, yeah, obviously I you know went to the club when all this went down, so I guess we'll see." Mm -hmm. Chance to win, I love that because. You know, it's easy to fly around on private jets and stay in five-star hotels with a bunch of beautiful women and drive Bugattis around. Cool. But where's the point where I get to actually prove I'm, I mean every word I say? Right. So God gave it to me. By so, going to yes. Sweden. Thank you. I agree. It's the yeah. same thing. Thank you. And if God decides I have to go back, then the best mental model I can have is not the Romanian system no, of justice is unfair. Uh, it's corrupt. I got too big. The Matrix got me. No, the best mental model is God wants me to learn something here. And he's going to teach me that through suffering. He's going to make this difficult and he's going to make me feel pain. And he's going to make this as hard as he decides it needs to be mm -hmm. so that I can sit here and learn things. From Swedish so I'm pussy. Go and sit with my cockroach friends <laughs> and I'm going to learn. I, learned, I, I le already learned things. I can tell you a bunch of things I learned. F even, even physical things. Uh -huh. I would hunt cockroaches in the dark. <laughs> At night, I would stand to, to, to kill them. I'd stand near the wall and I'd measure out a palm strike directly, exact measurement, so I didn't hurt my elbow or my hand, to the wall. And I'd just sit and just wait. And I'd hear them crawling. And in pitch, nearly pitch black, I could, I could hear one in front of me. Bam! I tore it. I got to the point where I could kill them. Ninja for real. I was like, I'm learning shit in here. Right. So that was fantastic. <laughs> I... Uh, yeah, I learned. Did you that's, learn anything about yourself? Again, <laughs> new, new, inf new information. That's all. I mean, you must have, right? I mean, you had a, you had a new experience, so you must there must be new information. I mean, you got tested, right? You're in jail for fuck's sakes. Like something must have popped oh, in yeah. your mind. There must Let's fucking break out the cigars. Here Some we go. That you can Shit's about to get real. <laughs> no, I'm exactly who I thought I was. <laughs> I am zero percent full of shit. I am exactly who I thought You're I was. Zero percent full of shit. If you would have told me, zero? if you would have told me before I went, like so afraid of being full of shit. What'd you say? Isn't that interesting? He's so afraid of being full of shit. Like I'm a little bit full of shit. Are we all a little bit full of shit? Like, oh isn't yeah. That part of what it means to be. Human? Yeah, it's like the. Uh, I feel like he could <laughs> sense the argument. The he could sense his conversation he's a little bit all over the place and he knows that and he knows David Sud's yeah. picking up on it. So instead of picking up a shield, he picks up the cigar and that's like, his, that's how he's going to protect himself is just adding more manly imagery to his self. Yeah. To no. self-conception. Before I went to, before I went to jail, before they put me in that dungeon in the dark mm -hmm. with the cockroaches if you would have told me how I would react to that scenario, I would have said to you, I would have suffered and it wouldn't have been nice, but I would have refused to break and I would have been the kind of person who sat there and endured and emerged more powerful than ever before. That's what I would have said. Yeah. And that's what I've done. Yes, yes. That's exactly what I've done. Yes. So, but that's not the question. There may, no, it's not. There may be a side order of nightmares. 
I, I learned, <laughs> I've never had nightmares before in my life. That surprised me. That surprised me. But they're here now. That's life. I learned that, I guess. I learned that when I got out of jail. I didn't have nightmares in jail, which is strange. Hmm. I had nightmares when I got out. Hmm. Maybe it's fear of going back. Hmm. Don't know. Yeah. But what else did I learn about myself? I had already pre-decided and I'd already told the universe how I would act in said scenario. This scenario was not a scenario I hadn't discussed or didn't believe could happen to me. I had already analyzed, if this happens, what are you gonna do? It was a pre-designated plan. And I just followed the plan I had already laid out for myself when I had already psychoanalyzed myself without my qualifications. <laughs> I had already decided what I must do, so I did it. Yeah, yeah. And, and, I, was, and, I, and I was able and capable of following the plan and following through. So I'm not a liar. I'm 0% full of shit. Right. I hear you. I hear you. And, 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 and if I was full of shit, I would well, sit here. Well, nightmares, though. But then I, there's something. I, not, it's not full right. of shit, but just the, the something happened. Oh, completely. Right? Because you're having nightmares now. So something is going on yes. that you don't, like. Understand. Understand. That's, that's all I'm getting that's at. That's completely true. I performed exactly how I needed to perform and how I knew I would perform. So when I talk about being top G and mental control yeah. and depression is not real, everything I say is true. I performed exactly as I could. And I should, there is a side effect which happens to be these nightmares, but my attitude towards the nightmares is, yes, thank mm -hmm. you, good. I don't want them to go away. They will go away when whatever needs to be dealt with is dealt with by my own mind. And like I said, if anyone right. else could fix them for me, I would not allow them to because I believe it is my lesson and it's my pain and my trauma and it's mine to deal with. And if I have to keep them forever, I'll keep them. Mm -hmm. I am not afraid of feeling negative. I'm not afraid of it. I'm not afraid of having nightmares. I'm not, I, don't, I don't wake up going, I want to feel good. I don't care. Mm -hmm. So if I have to feel miserable, it doesn't bother me. Mm -hmm. I don't see why, in fact, I'm gonna change that. I don't see how you can put such importance on how you feel as a man because it makes you non-competitive. Well, but it makes you, what it does is it brings you into presence. And presence is the most powerful quality that you can have as a human being. And if you are not in touch with your feelings, if yeah. you disown them or you rationalize them in some way, you're not fully present. Completely agree. Right? So the, the reason we want to connect with the places we have fear or pain or sadness, yeah. right? Or anger, whatever it is, it's not, it's not to feel it and let ourselves be a slave to it. Yeah. It's just to let it come into our conscious awareness to know what it is. There's information there. It's data, right? And, and if we can be present with all that we feel, right, we're much more powerful beings now, it's super interesting you said that because you're right. Because I wouldn't consider myself a present person. I am always thinking about what must be done. I'm thinking about interesting. Always that you would make you would confess that I'll you're confess. not a present person. No, I'm not present. If, if I'm present in the moment, I'm either on my computer talking to someone else millions of miles away or dealing with something else or I'm doing this podcasting about how I have to spar afterwards and then I've got a friend coming at 8.15 tonight. I have present? to see. I'm not present because things must be done and they no, must be no, organized. No, no, okay. This is, I'm not competitive if I'm present. I need to do things. Now, I'm, I, I'll agree with you. You're right. I'm not, I'm well, very rarely uh, present. But here's my frame for presence, right? The reason I'm not all the way present, which is all the way here, is because there's something here that I don't want to feel. No, I would say there's two, there's two scenarios in which I am very present, mm -hmm. and we'll talk about them in a second. But I'm not a very present person, but... I okay, so that was the end of that clip. Things are getting juicy. <laughs> it, I'll, say, I'll say it's interesting... <laughs> how i agree i was also shocked when he said I, I wouldn't consider myself a present person because so much of being a good warrior is 
presence and being able to react to things in the moment. And maybe he'll go on to say that when I'm fighting, that is one of the situations in which I am present because he said there were a couple situations. So we'll see. But it it sounds like Mm -hmm. presence would be required to do a lot of the things that he values as part of himself. Mm. So in this book, Iron John, the author makes the distinction between a soldier and a warrior. And he says that essentially, for the purpose of our conversation, if you can't enter into presence and if you can't serve something higher or highest higher than yourself highest like love for Mm. example or or gratitude then it doesn't matter if you're a great fighter you are a soldier you're not Mm. a warrior Mm. so it's something to think about i'm just gonna run to the bathroom real quick and then their last clip is 30 minutes do you want to power power through it or do you want to do another shorter third part because i assume um, it'll probably take like an hour to go through 30 minutes let's let's uh pause here because i have to I have to be home because it's like 7 30 okay. where i am this last part is actually the best part so as much as it pains me to <laughs> to pause let's pause okay here. and i i think it also may be good to save up our energy for a, a sure. ballistic part <laughs> three